Being Black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast. What's up, Dav? How you doing? Pretty good, Ty. Just, just, you know, just actually ate a really good salad. That's okay. really random, but okay. um, I'm on my health kick again. I have, I'm going to Miami in like two weeks, so, you know, trying to low-carb it up so I can look good in the pictures. You okay. Know? Yeah, ain't nothing <laughs> eating green and, and salads. And what kind of salad dressing you use? Okay, so yeah, that's where I I could have been a little bit better. I ate like some Catalina dressing, okay, which is not, it's not the too best. Bad. It's not too bad, bad though. You know, it has a lot of sugar in it though. But uh, I, yeah, I mean, at least you get your you vegetables been? in. I've been good. You yeah. know, uh, this past week has been good. I've been busy doing some events on campus and stuff like that, um, and just continuing to live that tenure life, working, trying to write, trying to do everything. Whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, I know that feeling. Uh, Friday, I actually turned in like a a, a pre-proposal kind of to, for my dissertation. And it took me like three weeks to write those four pages. But I feel like it feels good because I'm like, wow, I actually have a question. I have a topic. <laughs> so I'm, I'm in a very good place right now. You doing anything fun this past week? No, literally, I was like... I would wake up, work out, do work, cook and like go to sleep. It was cause, because the, the, the pre-proposal was due Friday for a mm. fellowship. It was just complete grind mode. And it's funny because when I was finished with it on, you know, Friday night, Saturday, like Saturday, I was just like really upbeat and just like, you know, just having fun. And John was like, wow, like. I guess those deadlines really make a difference. I'm like, yes. <laughs> like I get my wife back after them deadlines. Because, <laughs> like, yo, my mood was just, like, completely just off. Like, I don't I don't have time to talk to you. I don't have time for nothing. You gotta get this, gotta get this paper out. Yeah, that's how, that's how it is. I went to um, a play uh, last night. And well, it wasn't a play. It was actually my first time going to a stage reading. And the play was called uh, Every 28 Hours. And mm-hmm. it was pretty cool. It was about pretty much every 28 hours, uh, a black person dies, I think, by um, a shooting or something along those lines. Oh, and it really wow. focused on police brutality and shootings and, you know, had narratives from... It was like, actually, I think, I believe, if I remember correctly, it was 72 one-minute plays. And they were like in three sections. Um oh. And it was a stage reading. So it was, a, it was a, my first time with that kind of experience. It was really, really good. Students did a great job uh, with really highlighting a, almost everything. In 72 one-point plays, you have opportunity to highlight pretty much everything from community to protest to the mothers um, to, you know, the experiences of people who experience that kind of violence in their community. So, so I enjoyed that. And I really yeah, don't go to those kind of things. So. Maybe I'll start going a little bit more, you know. I know. Get, a, get some culture. You get know, some culture be part of that high culture life. You feel me? <laughs> <laughs> start going that to some operas cool. and whatnot. <laughs> right? You know, hip operas. Uh, oh yeah, hip hop. What is it? Hip hop operas. What is it? Hip operas. Yeah, hip hop. Yeah, hip operas. Yeah. 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 Okay. 
Um, but um, and and I guess in thinking about I guess culture and entertainment, although you know that's a very different type of entertainment, I've noticed in the the entertainment industry as of late, there has been a very interesting conversation going on around colorism. Mm-hmm. All right, have you have you heard about? So like there was recently an interview. Uh, on the Breakfast Club, they were interviewing mm-hmm. uh, the Latina rapper Amara La Negra, and she was talking about her experiences, you know, with colorism. Um, and it kind of led to uh, kind of gaslighting with Charlemagne, you know, essentially asking her, was it all in her head? Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that was really interesting. There was also like the case of, uh, I think, Gilbert Arenas, like going out of his way to comment on uh, some of Lupita's uh, uh, photos, you know, with, you know, making comments like, oh, Lupita, you know, she looks better in the dark and, you know, little comments like that. And so I feel like we've been having more conversations as a community around colorism, what that looks like. Is it real? You know, what are its impacts? Um, and so, yeah, I yeah, thought, yeah. yeah. Yeah, with that whole Charlemagne and the Breakfast Club interview and DJ Envy, they did receive a lot of flack for that. Uh, and it was interesting because, you know, Charlemagne, he was saying things like, you know, I don't see it. You know, I don't see it in Hollywood. He thinks times have changed a lot. Um, and asking him, you know, are you sure it's not in your mind? And he got a lot of flack for it. And I also listened to his Brilliant Idiots podcast and he kind of addressed it on there, too. And he, he said he felt that she was talking about two things. Um, you know, one is just the industry and then another was colorism. And he was kind of confused. He's, he admitted as far as what direction she was trying to take it in. Um, and, you know, he, he admitted that there are some things he needs to learn a little bit more of because he just didn't know. And he also, you know, was like he just he's always he's always been known to ask questions if he just is not sure. Uh, but I think she really was trying to highlight a lot of what goes on uh, as far as just colorism, skin tone, um, and how we address it as a society, how we look at it. And even within our community, you know, light skin versus dark skin, even on that very show, The Breakfast Club, which is kind of interesting how, you know, he addresses saying they don't talk about, but him and Envy always joke, throw jokes at each other all the time. He calls, and he literally calls DJ Envy a waffle color Negro. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, um, so he does understand it. It's a part of the community and a part of the narrative. But I think, uh, in broader context, we do need to begin to have more serious conversations as far as how that impacts people, um, and how it has and where it stems from and the history of colorism, which is why I'm really excited to talk about it today uh, with our special guest, Trina Jones, um, on the topic, who spent a lot of time and effort and research, really highlighting colorism, doing research on it and, and how it pertains to certain circumstances in the law as well. Mm-hmm. I, I agree, because I do think uh, what Charlemagne said, and I, you know, I didn't hear his brilliant idiots podcast, but um, it just it talks about, you know, he mentioned his need for more education, you know, very serious conversations. I'm pretty sure, you know, the the thing about Charlemagne is that he's willing to ask questions that other people aren't willing to ask. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's the only person that probably wants to know to what extent is this a real thing or, you know, is it just someone getting their feelings hurt, you know, you know, about, you know, something petty and that, you know, it really has nothing to do with uh, colorism. So I think it is time that we start having these real conversations 
with facts and not feelings mm-hmm. to see like what 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 is the deal with colorism in society and in the black community? So like you said, I'm really excited as well to talk to Trina Jones. Yeah. Yeah. And these are conversations I know we all have had. If you are a part of really any community of color, right? Um, it definitely happens within the Latino community, but it's for sure within the black community and African-American communities. Um, and there's always been talk of certain privileges being afforded to those who are lighter skinned and those who are darker skinned having a tougher time or, you know, that whole debate uh, as far as uh, attractiveness and even stemming from what we all heard of, you know, house Negro, field Negro during the slavery times and what, how that all has been a part of our embedded in our kind of cultural DNA and still is prevalent today in a lot of ways. Um, so uh, hopefully you guys will be informed in this conversation. Uh, we'll learn a lot. And and again, um, just just pay, pay, pay particular attention to, you know, not just how it happens in the law, but the history of where it comes from. And I think it'll make a lot mm-hmm. of sense of this, how we have these conversations and why we're having them and, and what they truly mean within our within our own social networks. All right, but you ready to get this show on the road, Dad? Ready to go. All right, see y'all in a little bit. In the United States and within the Black community, discussions around race and discrimination have often focused on racism and intergroup bias. Rarely have conversations about race thoughtfully and productively tackled racism's subtle cousin, colorism. Colorism is defined as the differential treatment of same race individuals on the basis of skin color. The lack of attention to colorism has contributed to misconceptions and questions about whether it truly exists outside the minds of those impacted by it, the extent to which fair-skinned people are harmed by colorism, its relevance outside of the black community, and whether tackling colorism undermines the collective fight to end racism. Today, We address those questions and misconceptions with Professor Trina Jones, a professor at Duke Law School and leading expert on colorism. She has published a number of articles on skin color and the law, intergroup racial preferencing and discrimination. We're happy to have her on BHD. Welcome, Professor Trina Jones. We really want to start this interview by just asking you a little bit more about yourself and how did you get into um, how did you choose the current path uh, of being a law professor and specifically also focusing on your research uh, related to colorism? So I grew up in Rock Hill, South Carolina, and my mother was a union organizer, a single mother of four children. And I was always interested because of her work and because I saw her organizing various textile plants in the South. East, uh, and issues of socioeconomic inequality. Um, that led me to law school. Uh, unfortunately, I was diverted. Well, not unfortunately, but I was diverted briefly to Big Law, which is a big law firm in Washington, D.C., after law school. But eventually, I found my way back to social justice issues through teaching. And I chose to look at colorism because my work focused on discrimination law. And I thought that we weren't addressing the nuances uh, within race and racism with sufficient um, detail and care uh, in the legal academy. And so colorism is a very nuanced form of racism, at least within the United States. And I wanted to bring greater attention to that and to the more complex ways in which racism operates in contemporary U.S., in the contemporary U.S. 
So I guess for our listeners, can you give us a definition of what exactly is colorism? So colorism is uh, making distinctions among same race individuals on the basis of skin tone, the relative darkness or lightness of the skin. So, for example, if one were to uh, think about I'm just going to use two common uh, fairly well-known uh, individuals, Beyonce and Andy okay. Ari, right? Beyonce is fairly light in terms of her skin tone and NDRE is darker. Some people might be drawn to uh, an individual with a lighter skin tone, right? Uh, for a variety of different reasons that are grounded in historic in, in history. No, it's really interesting that you say that. Um, uh, I really appreciate your work because I feel like colorism um, or skin tone differentiation is something that we maybe talk about within a community, but I didn't necessarily feel that it got a lot of scholarly attention to actually see like what role is this playing like in life outcomes in, you know, larger outcomes. So um, I, I really appreciate your attention to that. I guess you kind of mentioned um, that it was um, like it's been like something that's historical. I guess if you can talk a little bit more about like, I guess, the history of colorism, like where it comes from. I know in some of your work, you mentioned like the one drop rule. So I guess um, if you can just kind of talk about like how and where this emerged. Yeah. So I'll I'll say a couple of things on that. One, uh, colorism, which is also known as shadism, is not unique to the United States. Uh, When we look more broadly, globally, we see uh, a color hierarchy in different places. In Asia, it's quite prevalent. uh, In South America, in Central America. Um, So universally, you have this color hierarchy. And hopefully we can circle back to that um, because the way in which color uh, plays out and the salience that it has varies depending upon social context, okay? So in the United States, many people, uh, including myself, uh, point to the colonial era and the era of slavery uh, as part of the origins of the color hierarchy, right? Uh, So Europeans came to the United States, um, or what is currently known as the United States. Uh, Europeans, of course, were were white. They needed a justification for slavery, uh, and racial um, ideologies arose from that. Um, During the colonial era and the era of slavery, you had racial intermixing, which produced um, a population of black people who had varying skin tones. Um, Some of those individuals were the the product of involuntary unions between slave owners and uh, black enslaved women. Uh, and their children uh, had a lighter skin tone. Some of those men uh, accorded privileges to their children. Uh, Some children were manumitted, were freed uh, upon the slave owner's death. Uh, Some of them worked inside in the house as opposed to in the fields. And so you could see this hierarchy developing over time, right, Uh, based upon certain advantages that lighter-toned enslaved persons received, right? Uh, And these advantages were passed down 
uh, through generations, right, which resulted in some of the economic differences that we've seen historically uh, within the Black community, where you have this color hierarchy uh, affecting access to educational opportunity, which would then affect um, access to employment uh, and other uh, forms of income development and wealth development. Uh, So many scholars will trace the development of the color hierarchy uh, to uh, that period in U.S. history. Interesting. Um, and, you know, that's fascinating because I was reading your paper um, in Shades of Brown. I found that, and I think you have alluded to this too in, in one of the footnotes saying that you've had similar conversations. And I think this is common within the Black community, conversations with family members or with friends about the differences that we may or may not observe dealing with colorism in a lot of ways or shades of, of blackness or darkness uh, within our own communities. And uh, I feel that a lot of the times the conversation, you know, kind of goes back to that focus on the, the field Negro or the house Negro in a lot of ways. Uh, but in your article, you kind of outlined um, it the historical implications and how it was a little bit more nuanced than that. Um, and one way being in the upper South where there were a lot of, interracial relationships or, or marriages or, or children being born, uh, biracial children being born, or mulattoes, what they called them during that time period. Um, uh, it, it would seem that because, uh, well, what I found from, from your readings is that um, class played a big role in that, where it was still kind of unacceptable and the children coming from these mixed relationships were still viewed as black and treated as such. Whereas in the lower South, which traditionally has the, you know, reputation of being extremely conservative and racist in a lot of ways, were a little bit more accepting because the mulattoes being born were uh, from the heritage or bloodline of wealthy white men. And there were less of them, but they were usually afforded the privileges of, of whites. And then I also found it interesting how Social temperament and uh, climate played a role because when the civil right, when the civil war began to get closer, um, then we started to see this two class system begin to develop in the South where now mulattoes are being treated more as black than they were as white. And I find that kind of interesting how class did play a role within the kind of distribution of feelings or sentiments of people who were of lighter skin um, and how they were being accepted socially and legally uh, in many ways. Yeah, so I, I want to point to to one thing that's come up in the conversation that we haven't addressed explicitly. There is conversation within the African-American uh, community about colorism, right? We've talked about this uh, within our families. We still talk about it today. Um, it's been a historic phenomenon that has had real consequences. But colorism is not limited. Uh, and I've tried to make this point in my research to the black community or the Latino or Latinx community um, or Asian communities. White individuals also engage uh, in colorism. So I'll go back to your uh, question about uh, history uh, and the role of class and, and so on and so forth in a second. Uh, and we've seen this in terms of casting, right, uh, for uh, major roles in Hollywood productions. Yes. If you look historically at who has been cast, let's say, when you're looking at a female role uh, in a female romantic lead, um, that casting... Uh, it tends to gravitate towards someone who looks like Holly Berry as opposed to someone who looks like Viola Davis. Now, to be sure, Viola Davis uh, was cast uh, as a lead in Fences, but know that that's a production that focused primarily on black actors. I'm talking about a production that would uh, include uh, white actors, something along the lines of a monster's ball, right? Um, mm-hmm. You don't see black female uh 
actresses who are of darker skin tone being cast uh, in romantic leads. So, um, and those ca- casting decisions historically have been made by white individuals, right? So white people are not oblivious to uh, skin tone differences. If you look at commercials uh, these days, yes, there's more diversity in televised commercials. Uh, but if you look at the people of color, the black individuals who are being chosen, uh, particularly with regards to women, they tend to be of lighter skin tone. uh, And it's not just skin tone, but the hair uh, tends to be of a certain texture as well, right? So uh, those decisions are not necessarily being made by black individuals. So you see it uh, in terms of marketing and advertising who white individuals are choosing, right, uh, to represent their products. We also saw it in the 2008 presidential election election uh, when Barack Obama was being was a candidate uh, for the presidency. Joe Biden famously said um, in commenting on um, Barack Obama's appeal uh, and, and saying that, you know, he was a promising candidate. And I quote Biden, who said, I mean, you got the first mainstream African-American who is articulate and bright and clean and a nice looking guy. I mean, that's a storybook man. Right now, bright in that in that quote can be interpreted in a variety of different ways. Uh, but he, he's talking about uh, Obama's uh, persona. Right. Uh, and I think that for some people, the fact that he was uh, of a lighter skin tone um, based upon his, his, his biracial um, uh, ancestry uh, was important, right? And I think Harry Reid may have nailed it in terms of skin tone more directly because at the time he said that Obama was a promising candidate because he was a light-skinned, that's Reed's, Harry Reid, who was uh, a senator at the time, uh, light-skinned African-American And I'll quote him as well. He said, with no Negro dialect, unless he wanted to have one. Right. Mm -hmm. So he's pointing at skin tone. These are white men of some prominence and power uh, commenting on Barack Obama and his light uh, skin tone directly in the case of Harry Reid, more indirectly in the case of Joe uh, Biden. But certainly uh, one could read some sort of um, color preferencing, at least identity performance preferencing in Joe Biden's comment. So I I just want to underscore that it's not just people of color. Uh, who are fixated on color, are are focused uh, uh, and attentive to color differences. White individuals are uh, as well. It's interesting that you say that because, yeah, in those conversations that we have online or in our living rooms, there is the question or I've, I've often seen a lot of pushback against the idea that white people or non-black people notice skin tone differences among black people. And it's often a pushback. And, I, and you know, I think some of that may come from like the idea of like we have to be solid and show solidarity together. We are all black and acknowledging that outsiders might also notice these differences. I guess somehow I don't I don't know. It might strike people as like we are making you're saying that I am more privileged than you in a, in a sense. I don't know if that's where it comes from, but I have noticed like a pushback against the idea that outsiders also notice our differences. So you're, you're saying that within, with your communi- communications among people of color, uh, that there's been some resistance to the idea that uh, white individuals are also noticing uh, color differences? 
Yeah, you know, it might be like a comment, like, you know, when white people see us, we're all black, like they just see us as black. Um, And, you know, there might be pushback from others to say, no, I'm pretty sure they notice and they might gravitate toward like some type of, you know, some some type of black people more than others. But yeah, I noticed like a pushback against the idea like, you know, white people don't see this. They just kind of see us all. They just see black when they see me. well, Daphne, I think you're, you're raising an important point and that for purposes of this conversation. So we're focused on colorism. And I think that it's really important that people not confuse colorism and racism, although there are important similarities between the two. So, yes, when you think in terms of racial categories um, and who is black, um, and I'm, I use the term black as a universal uh, phrase to reference all people uh, who are brown, regardless of country of origin. So black would include people on the continent of Africa, uh, people from South and Central America, uh, people all over, right? Uh, Whereas African-American, I used to point to um, brown people in the United States who trace their ancestry back to uh, slavery, right? So um, when you think about race, right? Um, I I do think that many people feel that um, people don't differentiate uh, within uh, races, right? Uh, on the basis of skin tone, either you're black or you're white or you're Asian or you're Latinx and, and the nuances don't matter, uh, that, uh, much. Uh, so there, there is that view, um, that's been articulated by uh, many people, but that's racial categorization, right? That is, um, focusing on certain indicators like color or hair texture or facial features, the full of the nose, the, the thickness or fullness of the lips, the shape of the eyes, right? Those sorts of things. And then ascribing meaning to those and creating racial categories, right? Um, colorism is, 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 and it, colorism is slightly different, right? It's saying, okay, we have these racial categories uh, in place. Um, and sometimes within those categories, people will differentiate, right? And they will differentiate based upon socioeconomic class. So a person who uh, has a degree from Harvard, who speaks in a certain way, uh, who works in a certain uh, place may be more acceptable than someone who doesn't have those credentials. So they may uh, differentiate based upon class, but they also differentiate based upon gender, right? So in some situations, a black male may be more uh, appealing for, let's say, a particular position, an employment position, than say a black female might be. And my argument is that they also differentiate uh, based upon skin tone. So yes, some people will make really broad um, distinctions based upon race, but there are times, and this is the importance of this research, when individuals will um, differentiate, make more nuanced um, uh, distinctions uh, within the category um, of black or African-American. And um, that's what my research is focused on, right? Those sort of nuanced distinctions. Maybe everyone doesn't make them. Some people still abide by the one drop rule. If you have one uh, drop of black blood in your ancestry, based upon biological notions of race, um, or one drop of uh, chocolate in the milk, so to speak, then you're black and nothing else matters, right? Um, but I, I think that that that's that's that doesn't really capture uh, everything that's happening in our complex um, uh, uh, social 
in this complex social moment, right? I do think that people are making more nuanced um, uh, distinctions and we need to pay attention to those distinctions so that we don't assume that if X, Y, and Z in the race are, 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 are gaining prominence, that that means that everybody in the race is going to do well as a consequence. Oh, interesting. I think, um, you know, also within these conversations that I think many people have, a lot of times, and I think this is what kind of Daphne was saying too earlier, um, you know, the inclusion of um, scholarly work, academic work, right? And I mean, that's just something that people usually don't bring into their everyday conversations with close friends and family members. Um, but within these debates that they are having, probably at the dinner table or what have you, um, of, of, you know, lighter skinned people faring better in many circumstances than darker skinned people, is there evidence to support that claim? Do we actually see this happening? Uh, I know you mentioned that we've seen it um, definitely in media and in movies and, and things of that nature, but do we see it uh, more generally in employment, um, education, uh, just more privilege and access to opportunities for who are those people who are light-skinned? Is there, is there actual factual truth to that statement? So um, economists are looking at that question today. Um, and my colleague here at Duke, Sandy Darity, uh, who is an economist, has been looking at uh, some of the economic consequences of skin tone, right? And his research suggests that um, lighter toned individuals, in fact, do uh, fare better in terms of income um, and, um, and life outcomes. Margaret Hunter has done some work. She's a sociologist. Uh, along these lines, also pointing to the fact that uh, economically, um, lighter toned individuals do uh, tend to uh, do uh, better uh, and on, on many metrics. So the research uh, is fairly new, um, but and it's evolving. Uh, but there is evidence to support that lighter toned individuals uh, have historically and still do uh, in the United States uh, fare better. Um, with regards to income and educational opportunity uh, than darker toned individuals. Now, we're in a dynamic social context that may be changing, right? Uh, so we'll have to see where the research goes in future years, but there is uh, data to support that. And I would point you to uh, Sandy Darity, William Darity's work um, in part. There's also other research coming out of um, uh, Princeton. Ellis Mock, uh, mm -hmm. who is a sociologist there, is doing research on some of the health consequences consequences of um, discrimination, and his work specifically focuses on uh, color uh, discrimination, colorism, and shadism. And what he is showing by looking at what's happening in the United States, and he's also done some comparative work in Brazil, uh, is that um, skin tone differences uh, actually manifest in terms of uh, health outcomes, a higher propensity uh, for certain um, uh, uh, illnesses, um, for example, high blood pressure, um, heart disease, those sorts of things are associated um, broadly with discrimination. And his work is focusing on skin tone differences and the relationship between that variable and health outcomes. So uh, the data is emerging, um, but we're seeing uh, these, these, these associations. Um, I actually got to see uh, Professor Ellis Monk uh, give a talk on his research, and it was really interesting. And I, after the fact, I read an article and it kind of, I guess, aligns with 
with Professor Darity's research that shows um, there's an article that he has like skin tone stratification among black Americans. And it was kind of like looking at data from the 50s through the 80s, but also seeing like whether those uh, differences in stratification by skin color carried over into like the the current period. And he actually did find that uh, skin tone is associated with black Americans, educational attainment, household income, occupational status, and even the skin tone and educational attainment of their spouses. Um, And it was just interesting because when I saw his talk, I was just like, wow, there's just like not a lot of research. So I, like I said, I'll just say again, I just really appreciate the work you're doing, um, the work of like uh, Professor Monk, because it's just like, I, I think we have lots of opportunities when we take what we think is common sense, but we actually back it up with data or we refute it with data because maybe our assumptions about certain things don't work out. So uh, again, just shout out to you um, about this work. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. The, um, with, you know, I, I, when you, as you were talking and, and um, you know, this comes to my mind when I'm thinking about colorism and I'm thinking about, so, so yes, we are seeing, we have always seen this evidence of how colorism plays out um, within the black community and, and how it affords certain advantages to others. And I'm trying to figure out socially how when we have these conversations about things that happen internally within the black community. How can we um, have these conversations? Right. Because on one end, I can see it being, you know, if a light-skinned person, right, gets a role, perhaps, right, um, and on one end, people may be saying, "Oh, you only got that role because you're light-skinned," etc. But it, it, there might be some truth to that, right? Uh, but moving forward as a community, you know, I feel like this can be, and I think it has been in some ways, um, created a divide in some instances, right? But how can we have this conversation? without creating a divide? How can we tackle? Because I think traditionally we're just used to having the, 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 the binary, you know, conflict of black versus white. And I think it's easier to digest and converse about. But now when we're talking about these kind of internal differences or, or intraracial differences, I think the conversation becomes a little bit more challenging. Right. Um, and far as are we blaming other people for getting privileged because of their lighter skin tone um, and those who are darker may have uh, more challenging experiences, but how do we as a community maybe try to address this in in some way? Yeah, yeah, I really appreciate that question. I want to issue one caveat, right? So the color hierarchy does tend to um, privilege lightness, right? Um, The closer you are to white, the better uh, you seem to fare uh, on a variety of different dimensions, socially, politically, uh, economically, and so on and so forth. But it all depends upon context, right? So there are situations where lighter toned individuals are harmed. Right. Uh, so you can imagine a, a scenario where uh, you might have uh, some sort of um, organization that really privileges uh, blackness. Right. Um, that's trying to celebrate um, uh, African-American history and our contemporary presence. Um, and, you know, sort of a modern version of uh, I'm black and I'm proud or the black or the berry, the, the sweeter the juice, that sort of mm-hmm. uh 
notion. And in that context, um, lighter tone individuals might actually uh, not be privileged, right? Uh, so it really does depend upon uh, context. There are stories of lighter toned uh, individuals who feel as if they've been shunned by um, aspects of the or subgroups within the African-American community uh, because they uh, are, are light, right? Um, and so we can't overlook that harm that does happen. So um, generally the color hierarchy, yes, privilege is lightness, but there are contexts where um, white individuals feel as if they uh, have been left out or shunned or treated poorly, right? Um, because of their lighter uh, skin tones. Uh, as to your question about how do we as an African, African-Americans or as black people in the United States not allow uh, this sort of conversation to uh, divide us, I think that we have to be attentive to the ways in which we're differently situated if we are to move ahead as a group, right? So when I hear that question, I hear people um, saying, you know, historically, we can't uh, focus on sexism within the African-American community uh, because we really need to focus on racism, right? Or we can't focus on class within the African-American community because race is, um, you know, has to be our first priority. Uh, but that ignores that people are differently situated within the community, right? And if you don't address the ways in which people are differently situated, if you don't address the sexism to which Black women are subject, right? Uh, if you don't uh, address the poverty within the community and just focus on um, individuals who are doing well economically, uh, then when progress happens, it may happen only for a subset of the community and the rest will not necessarily um uh, prosper. And I'm making the same argument with regards to skin color. We've got to uh, address this particular issue if we want all people within the community, regardless of skin tone or hue, right, uh, to progress. If there's a preference in terms of marriage, in terms of dating, in terms of employment, in terms of uh, elected officials for those who have lighter skin tones, uh, then you might see more people of color, more black black people being elected, but if it's only a subgroup uh, of the, the, the race, right, uh, then I'm not sure that that's the sort of progress that we want to embrace. Yeah. We need to embrace progress that's going to be inclusive of everybody uh, in the community. Um, so I, I sort of resist these ideas that we can't look with greater nuance and care at the ways in which we're differently situated, because that's just going to uh, lead to a lack of unity uh, among people of color. I think addressing uh, the complexities of our identity the complexity of our group will actually bring us closer, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So uh, kind of along the same lines, like how do we start having those conversations? Because I feel like a lot of this might come from like a place of hurt or it's kind of like like you mentioned, like the sexism thing. Like I've engaged in many conversations about this and it's kind of like a you want me to acknowledge a privilege that I don't think I have in terms of like maybe my gender identity or you want me to acknowledge a privilege that I have in terms of class and you know, we're all black. So like, it's kind of like, how do we have these conversations without people feeling attacked and without with people being willing to like maybe embrace aspects of their privilege, I guess. 
Well, it's not a question of blame, right? Um, I think we need to understand where um, colorism comes from and why it has salience, right? Uh, so you've got to keep the larger frame in mind. We live in a context, social context, where uh, race is salient and where whiteness, and I'm not speaking in terms of individuals, I'm speaking in terms of the concept, whiteness is privileged, right? Uh, and the color hierarchy has meaning in this particular context because of that racial hierarchy, right? Whites on top, you know, people of color uh, on the bottom. And maybe if you believe Eduardo Bonilla Silva's work, there's some intermediate uh, group that's forming as demographics change uh, in the country, right? So the color hierarchy has meaning because of the racial hierarchy. So people need to understand uh, that colorism in the United States is a result of racism, right? Um, we, you know, from from the it's a product of colonization, right? Europeans were white. Um, they brought uh, these ideas of white privilege, of whiteness being superior uh, to uh, the colonial United States. They enslaved Africans, right? And they pass these ideas along. So this is part of the social fabric of the United States. When we address colorism, what we're doing is pushing back against ideas of white supremacy. So to say to a brother or sister um, that, you know, uh, lightness has privilege is not to say that that person uh, is not deserving of whatever they have. It's to say that in, a, in this social context, right, uh, you may have been privileged, right, because whiteness has value, right? So it's not uh, a, a, an accusatory game towards that person. People just need to understand how we're differently situated um, because we live in a racist society where color, right, uh, has a huge amount of meaning. Mm. So I think if people understand that, then it's not this sort of pointing the finger at somebody saying you don't deserve X, Y, and Z. It's saying you are where you are in part because of your efforts, but also in part because you have certain physical features that are prized in this social context. Mm. And people have to acknowledge that. Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> I think that can currently we can begin to see that. Um, and I mean, this is just my, my personal opinion of what I've been witnessing uh, going on with more conversations centered around race and, and, and progression in that regard. I feel that and I think you may have talked to, said this in, in the article too. I think you said that there was a a strengthening of the alliance between um, uh, lighter skinned or mixed race folks and 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 black people during like the Black Panther move, or not Black Panther, Black pa Black Party, Black Black Power movement um, in the '60s. And I think that today we're kind of seeing a, a similar um, resurgence of that with the Black Lives Matter and the people that are speaking out, right, making a lot of a large strides for the community like Colin Kaepernick, like Jesse Williams, and and even people like Barack Obama, right, who are, who are mixed, who are lighter skinned, um, but seem to be accepted fairly well within the community, within the media, especially um, with the message that they're trying to portray and, of progression and addressing issues like racism. Um, and it seems to be much more of an embrace with, you know, people who are light skinned and are using their platform and their privilege, right, to kind of combat the this, this racist uh, racism uh, uh, machine that we all are really trying to combat. I think that's right. And there are also dark skinned people, mm -hmm. right, who are carrying forth uh, a message of racial solidarity. Oh, yeah, definitely, right? definitely. Um, so you have Viola Davis mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and 
Hollywood, right? Uh, Al Sharpton. So there, I mean, I think it's a, a wide array of individuals who are carrying forth uh, the message that uh, there is racism, is pervasive in the United States, and it needs to be um, addressed. This isn't really, I mean, to go back to Daphne's observation, this isn't about blame, right? This is recognizing that we are in a social context where for over 400 years, right? Uh, whiteness has been valued and darkness has been denigrated. And it's uh, part of the language uh, that we use. I mean, think about uh, phrases like uh, white night, right? Uh, daytime being uh, viewed as, you know, desirable and dark you know, a night being somehow sinister and to be to be feared, right? So it's blacklist in our language, right? Um, in our, our the images to which uh, many of us were subject when we were kids. When you think about childhood um, princesses, right, um, and uh, and heroes, right, they were for the most part until recently white, right? So it's encoded in our language, it's encoded in the imagery that we see. Um, and I think that we need to understand, right, uh, the ways in which all of this this language about color, right, uh, will affect the way in which we are viewed by others and the way in which we view each other. And it's not about blame, it's about understanding, right? Uh, so that we can all like uh, progress, um, in a variety of different ways in society uh, equally. No, um, I think that's a really good observation. And I, I hope we can definitely uh, move toward um, toward that. Um, you kind of mentioned and kind of thinking about Terrell's um, question about um, the role of uh particularly like biracial um, activists and like pushing forward uh, an agenda like related to racial justice and social justice. Um, you also mentioned uh, Professor Eduardo Benia Silva and his um, uh, theory uh, or his work about like a potential like tri-racial categorization. Um, they have it in Brazil and like it's potential to develop in the United States. And it's interesting because one thing I have noticed is also like a movement for biracial, black, white biracials to um, embrace their like mixed heritage, like kind of like a pushback against the one drop rule. Um, and like there was even like this like YouTube documentary, something like um, I'm biracial, not black, damn it, or something like that. And like, so I guess I guess you're, what I want to know your thoughts on that. Like, do you see us like moving toward that to where it's like a, a tri-racial category um, or a tri-racial system to where it's like white, like these mixed or racially ambiguous and then kind of like dark black? Like, could you see that at all emerging in the U.S.? I am definitely um, intrigued by the concept. Um, we've seen it before. Uh, so Terrell mentioned earlier uh, differences between the Upper South and the Lower South. Um, part of what happened in the Lower South was you had large numbers of African slaves, right, enslaved people. Um, and sometimes when you have uh, a small number of elites, uh, they need a buffer, right? They want to increase their numbers in order to decrease the possibility of some form of revolt, right? Uh, so um, that's happened historically in parts of the United States, um, also in parts of Brazil. Um, a legal scholar named Tanya Hernandez has written 
uh, prolifically and persuasively about uh, the use of buffers um, in times when uh, people feel as if people on the top of the hierarchy feel as if their numbers are decreasing. And so what you want to do is to uh, create this buffer category uh, between you and those who are at the very bottom of the hierarchy to sort of decrease the power of those at the bottom. Um, and so I think Bonilla Silva uh, is making an, the same so an observation based upon uh, contemporary demographic trends where we see, right, an increasing number of uh, Latinx individuals, right, and uh, some concerns among whites about uh, their numbers decreasing, right? So in this moment, what he's positing is that what will happen is that some individuals who are in what he calls the collective uh, black. So if you imagine a triangular hierarchy, you have uh, the collective black on the bottom. And this is not just African-Americans, uh, but it would include uh, certain groups from certain parts of Asia, right, uh, as well as Native Americans So on the bottom. But what you might have is some cherry picking uh, among those individuals. So perhaps lighter toned Latinos, um, lighter toned Blacks or biracial uh, black white individuals and successful uh, Japanese, Korean, um, Chinese Americans, successful groups within the Asian American community. Uh, those might be persons who are honorary whites, not quite white. So they're not at the top of the hierarchy, but they're in the middle. And to the extent that those individuals embrace their differences, right, we are better than the collective black, right, those people who are not like us, um, then what you have is the inability of those people who are racialized as uh, black or brown in the United States to actually come together in some form of uh, social protest or opposition to the racial hierarchy in the United States. So I think that to some extent you can see this materializing. There are fractures within communities, right? Uh, so Japanese, Korean, and Chinese Americans, some individuals within that group uh, may uh, differentiate themselves from Filipinos or those from Vietnam or Laos and so on and so forth. Uh, you might see, uh, and we have seen some um, African-Americans who are lighter differentiating themselves or biracial differentiating themselves, as you just suggested, Daphne, from darker uh, toned uh, blacks, right? Um, so if you see this, or uh, higher, um, uh, those with a higher socioeconomic class differentiating themselves from those who are of lower economic classes, right, within the Black community. If those differences begin to have meaning to people, right, then you can see the emergence of this three-tiered uh, hierarchy. And that serves the interests of those on the top, because then what you have are those in the middle saying, well, we're not like those other people, right? We are better than them in certain dimensions, uh, and we're going to distance ourselves from those individuals. Know what that does in terms of speaking to the possibility of resisting uh, a capitalistic system, right, uh, that seeks to subordinate uh, people of color, right? So I think that Bonilla Silva's observations are important, um, and, you know, maybe playing out. I think um, I kind of want to move to, you know, what I what I think is, you know, part of what you have been contributing and are contributing to uh, the field. When we talk about colorism and the legal settings in the courts in particular. Um, and I think it's interesting. I think people should, you know, we should have a conversation about this for our listeners as well. How colorism plays a role within uh, the court system 
anti-discrimination, Title VII, all the above. Um, I think when we traditionally or generally think about the courts, uh, you know, anti-discrimination, of course, it's probably easier to um, visibly understand, right? If it's a black person versus a white person and anti-discrimination lawsuits, if it's a man versus a woman. Uh, but I think it gets a little bit more complicated uh, when we are looking again with these uh, intra-group differences um, and things like colorism can arise and how um, I think you outlined pretty well how it's not really where it should be when the courts are trying to really address race and colorism and not really uh, finding a solid distinction yet in a lot of the precedences and the cases that have been happening uh, with that kind of distinction. Yeah, can I'll get to that question in one second. Can I go back for a mm-hmm. second to Daphne's observation yeah, sure. about biracial persons saying that they're not really uh, black? You have to sort of um, deconstruct what's being said in that moment, right? So don't label me as black because let's assume that one parent is white and one parent is black. Uh, I'm biracial. I want to express all aspects of my heritage. For many people, that sim- they find that that argument sympathetic, but. You have to query what's going on in that moment. If whiteness and blackness had the same value in our society, nobody would be saying I'm not black. Right. So generally it's it's not, um, you know, someone's classifying you um, as 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 white and you want to celebrate your black heritage. It's the opposite. Right. You're being uh, characterized as black and you want to celebrate your white heritage because there's privilege. Right. Associated with that white heritage. So uh, in that moment when the person is saying I'm not black, it's almost because blackness has negatives associated with it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so by invoking this concept of whiteness, uh, it's. Um, creating some privilege for that individual. Uh, exactly what Eduardo Bonilla was was describing, right? Separating yourself out from uh, the rest of the Black community and trying to say, well, I, I'm different in this way. And in a social context where Blackness and whiteness don't carry the same weight, right? They're not treated with the same value. Claiming whiteness, right, uh, is claiming some privilege. So I, I just wanted to make no, that point. point. With with regards to, and, and Tanya Hernandez has written about that in a Maryland Law Review article about 10 or 15 years ago, um, entitled Multiracial Discourse, where she talks about um, what's happening in that moment when you uh, say, I'm not black, um, I'm biracial, especially when you're talking about black, white, biracials, right? What you're doing is trying to invoke some of the privileges of whiteness. And we've got to realize that those two are not equivalent in our society and what's happening in that moment. Um, with regards to uh, the law, I think the first point that is important for people to know is that it's hard to win any discrimination claim uh, in the court system. If you have a straight race claim, white person uh, uh, is, is, is chosen for the position and you are black and you're saying you've been discriminated against because of your race, it's going to be incredibly difficult uh, to actually prevail uh, on that claim because for a variety of the reasons, including the fact that um, some people don't think that race is um, 
as prevalent uh, today as it was historically, uh, and because of some requirements in the law in terms of showing intent, right? Uh, so if you don't believe that race is pervasive, racism is pervasive, uh, and if the plaintiff is required to show intentional discrimination and people aren't leaving smoking gun trails, uh, emails uh, attesting to their racial bias, it's going to be hard to prove that claim, right? Um, so race claims are difficult to prove. Uh, a color claim is going to be even more difficult to prove because what you're saying in a color case is, uh, a colorism case is, okay, my white boss, right, uh, hires people of color, African-Americans, right, but that boss prefers African-Americans who are of a lighter skin tone. Right. So a jury is going to sit back and, and, and likely say, wait a second, this person hires African-Americans and you're saying that they still discriminate. Uh, how does that work? Right. So I think that that's going to be one of the challenges. And that is one of the challenges uh, that you'll see uh, in these. Uh, color cases. People just don't believe that someone who will hire African-Americans is going to differentiate uh, among uh, African-Americans based upon skin tone. Um, and so what you have to do is to educate the fact finder and show how intergroup differences matter in other contexts, right? So you may have um, a woman, right, uh, in a sex discrimination case uh, who uh, has been fired or not promoted um, based upon how she performs her identity, right? So the employer might prefer a woman who uh, dresses in traditionally feminine ways, and the plaintiff might um, have more of a masculine gender performance, right? So you point out the ways in which intergroup differences matter in other contexts to convince fact finders that uh, it actually matters uh, when it comes to race and skin color. And that's where the historical data becomes very important, as well as some of the contemporary um, empirical scholarship being engaged in by economists uh, and sociologists. So there's some education that has to take place. Uh, but know that that education is going to be against um, a background of resistance, mm -hmm. right? You have an employer who hired black folks and now you're saying that they discriminate among black people. Uh, you know, people will be a little resistant um, to that as so education uh, will be required. Another observation that's been made uh, in the cases uh, is, well, when do you know um, that skin tone differences are salient, right? At what point is someone too dark, right? Um, and, and crosses the line into undesirability. So some courts have said, we don't want to get into the unsavory business of trying to um, differentiate among uh, skin tones. But you know what? We get into the unsavory business in the law of making fine distinctions um, in other settings as well. In tort law, whether something is negligent or not, you know, re requires uh, some sort of fine-tuned factual analysis. So that uh, argument has been stated, um, but one can push back uh, against it. I, I think that the biggest challenge in the cases is people just don't believe, right, uh, that someone who will hire a person of color will then discriminate among uh, people of color. And you've got to educate um, individuals about that. I will say, uh, Terrell, that there has been an increase in color claims. So the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission is a federal um, commission that um, – 
that basically uh, receives uh, charges of discrimination under a variety of federal anti-discrimination statutes, including uh, Title VII uh, of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits discrimination in employment. And so we've seen an increase from 1997 uh, to 2016 from 0.9% of their their charges being based upon color to 3.4% of their charges being based upon uh, color uh, discrimination claims. Um, that's an increase from about 700, let's say 750 to a little over 3,000 uh, in absolute uh, numbers. It's small, but it's noticeable, right? Uh, because Basically, before 1997, you had very few uh, pure color claims uh, being brought. Um, and so we've got to see what's happening uh, with these cases uh, and what the complexion of the uh, plaintiffs is like. Many of us um, have noticed that uh, many of the color discrimination claims are being brought by immigrants uh, from countries where color is more salient, right? Uh, so you can't make racial distinctions uh, in a country that's predominantly of one race, uh, but color distinctions have uh, some salience. So some of recent immigrants, you know, from those countries uh, are more uh, likely to bring uh, color claims. Um, I've hypothesize that some of what may be happening is that people are unable to readily place individuals within racial categories uh, today. And so they're using color uh, as a way to um, identify someone as being other or different, right? Uh, so color then in a context where you have more um, interracial sex um, and more biracial individuals, people can't racially easily racially categorize those individuals in all contexts, but color uh, becomes uh, a mechanism for othering someone. And I suspect that that may play out uh, in the cases, but we'll have to like uh, just, you know, watch and see over time. All right. Um uh, that was, you know, very interesting and um, very much appreciate that. And it was one point that you uh, kind of made about like the difficulty of actually winning a discrimination case. And that actually came up in another interview we did with um, uh, Professor Wendy Green from uh, uh, Cumberland School of Law at Sanford. And, uh, we interviewed her and uh, Professor Angela Onwachi Willig uh, from Ber- uh, from Berkeley. And they kind of talked about like the difficulty of actually winning such cases and how like a lot of the work has to be done at the local level um, as well as through education and just educating people. And that's one thing I just really appreciate about legal scholars. Like your work has the potential to just like, you know, really educate people and hopefully change the way people are um, doing things um, on the job and um, people who are really interested in just uh, making a difference or like complying with uh, certain things. And kind of well, Professor Green and Professor Unwatchy Willick oh, are yay. my very good friends. Um, yeah, and we've done a lot of work uh, on hair uh, in recent months because there have been uh, prohibitions against natural hairstyles in certain schools uh, in the country. We've been pushing back uh, against that. But this raises a really important point. It's not just skin color. There are other ways in which uh, people within the African-American, within the black community are um, differentiated Um, and hair being one of them. Right. Whether you wear your hair um, 
in a natural uh, style or whether it is permed makes uh, or processed uh, makes a huge difference um, in some context in terms of how one is treated, right? On the job, uh, in social interactions and so on and so forth. So my recent work is looking at the ways in which skin color overlaps with other dimensions of our identity uh, and importantly hair, right? Uh, if you're African-American, but nose, uh, the broadness of the nose, the shape of the eyes if you're Asian-American, right? That plays a huge uh, role. So it's not just one variable. There are all of these ways in which these variables uh, interact to situate uh, individuals uh, differently. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think that um, back to your, your observation, uh, legal scholarship can be useful if we, um, if we translate it in the right uh, ways and in the right uh, settings. Can I make one final point um, that may be useful to your listeners? And that is, we need to keep in mind that colorism is not unique to the African-American community. Um, It exists within the Latinx community, um, as does, you know, hair differences. They have a lot of salience uh, within the Latinx community um, and globally. So in 19, in 2001, I was in Vietnam uh, for the first time in the summer, and it was extraordinarily hot. I was leaving the airport in Hanoi, and I write about this in one of my articles. And I noticed that while I'm sweating and trying to just take off articles of clothing to cool down, I noticed that uh, people working in the rice fields and riding motorcycles and bikes at the time had their faces covered with a scarf or and their arms, and some women had on gloves. And I noticed that this was predominantly uh, among women who actually were covered in this way. And I was intrigued because I was hot and, and they and I was taking things off and they were uh, clearly covered. So I started asking questions about why women were um, covered in this way. And the answer that I received, uh, and it's driven some of my scholarship uh, in recent years, is that um, they were trying to prevent their skin from becoming too dark. And of course, the next question I asked was why? Uh, And the answer was uh, that they didn't want to be perceived as being among the lower classes in Vietnam, those who worked and labored in the fields as opposed to people who worked inside, right, Um, in office jobs, right? So there was a class dimension to what was going on in terms of this privileging of lighter, whiter skin. Um, But there's also a gender component. The women told me that lighter-toned, lighter-skin-toned Vietnamese women were deemed to be more attractive uh, and uh, to do well in terms better in terms of romantic relationships, right? Um, I also noticed that summers I traveled throughout Southeast Asia, started paying attention, right? Uh, that there were skin lightening, they're called skin brightening products, um, everywhere in uh, drugstores and supermarkets. Uh, and they were targeted towards uh, individuals, primarily women at the time, although that's shifting in the market is expanding to include men. Um, basically, um, you know, advertising white skin. And the products were called um, White Perfect in Asia and in, in Southeast Asia and in South Asia on the Indian subcontinent, I saw um, fair and lovely products. So um, I started researching what was happening within Asian communities in terms of uh, skin lightening. And to my surprise, 
Um, and it should not have been a surprise, but we learn as we go, right? Um, the skin lightening business is a multi-billion dollar industry, uh, and Asia is the primary market, uh, and South Asia is probably the largest market in terms of skin lightener. So I think that it's important that people realize uh, that this is not just within the United States. It's universal, right, uh, within other communities. And you will see this in places that you might not um automatically expect it to uh, exist. So when we start looking critically at what's happening in the United States, uh, it's not about blaming each other. It's about understanding, right, uh, the salience of color in this culture as well as in uh, other cultures. Mm-hmm. No, I definitely agree. I love that phrase. It's not about blaming. It's about understanding. Um and I just want to say thank you, Professor Trina Jones, for taking out the time to have this conversation with us. Um, is there anywhere, any place or any resources you think uh, our listeners should look out for or should look at or anywhere to find you if you're on any kind of social media at all? Well, I am not okay, on social that's, that's media. <laughs> but I, I mean, I can be contacted uh, through my business uh, email. Um, that's tjones at law.duke. .edu. I hope that people will read my work, um, especially as I begin to make these connections between uh, color and hair and nose uh, uh, and eye shape and that sort of thing, um, because I really welcome feedback right uh, on these projects. Uh, and for people who are not within the African-American community, I would really love to learn more uh, about their experiences of colorism or shadism within uh, the Latinx uh, and in Asian communities communities as well, because I think that we need to figure out um, why this is happening in different contexts. Is it always a result of racism or is there uh, a more explicit gendered and class dimension in other contexts? And and if we understand that, um, can we use it to understand what's happening in the United States with greater nuance? Um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd really love to hear from people uh, in terms of resources in addition to my scholarship. I think that the documentary Dark Girls is a great um, um, mechanism for opening up a conversation uh, in, let's say, the educational arena, right, uh, about uh, colorism. So if educators are are looking for something that's a little less academic, I think that that's a really useful vehicle for uh, having these conversations. Excellent. Excellent. For all our listeners out there, we'll definitely post links and and citations to a lot of the um, sources we discussed. Um, Also, you know, um, I know we did a lot of name dropping as well. So we'll put the links up to some of those folk as well uh, when we post this on the website. So you can have a one stop shop on the website when this episode is posted so you can get all that information. um, So you can if you want to interested in continuing this quest for knowledge in this particular field, uh, we'll definitely try to help you out with that and also participate in the forums. Because if there are any questions that arise, uh, I'm sure we can either contact Professor Jones again or, you know, do some more research and try to answer some of the questions that may arise from this conversation we're having today. Well, I'd just like to say thank you so much, Professor Jones, for taking out your time out of your busy day to speak with us. This conversation was just like so amazing. Like it was a a good mix of like important topics that are just of interest to me because of my positionality as a black woman um, who's just interested in like these conversations in the community, but but also as a, a PhD student and rising scholar and who's interested in like putting facts and statistics and data to conversations that are important to the black community. So thank you so much. Thank you. 
Well, thank you so much for having thank me. You. All right. Two steps, two steps. Affection don't mean a Wow, so that was really good. Yeah. Really good. Yeah, what did you think? Um, I thought it was great. I thought that um, Trina Jones really was very insightful. Um, it's clear that she's an expert in this area when it comes to colorism, not just with regards to the law, but overall all the context and history behind it and why we are today. She cited many good works. Um, that's how you always can tell if someone is really keeping current with the field is knowing the works uh, of other people right off the top of their head. Like it was, mm-hmm. it was nothing. <laughs> um, so um, her insight was, it was invaluable. And I think it's an important part to the conversation when we're talking about colorism. So, you know, what are your thoughts? So one thing, yes, I, I appreciated her knowledge around it. Um, I was also very appreciative of the fact that this is an expanding field of like sociological and uh, legal inquiry um, that we can move beyond, you know, these conversations that revolve around hurt feelings and um, anecdotes and actually look at the data surrounding it. So I appreciate that. But I also appreciated her placing colorism within a global context and allowing us to move beyond this idea that colorism is something that only impacts the black community. And I'm pretty sure people know that. But when they really think about the fact that in in some Asian countries, it is nothing for, you know, skin bleaching cream to be advertised on a TV and on billboards. So, you know, it is something, you know, white supremacist ideology and um, the the bias toward fair skin. It is not an American thing. We are not exceptional in that sense. It is not, you know, a black thing. It is a thing that we have to deal with globally uh, and change mindsets around, you know, the link between, you know, success and color or attractiveness and color or, you know, just all of the stereotypes that might be associated with light and and dark. So I, I really appreciate her placing that within a global, uh, global context. And I'll, mm-hmm. I'll also say that it's interesting because I will say, Actually, the uh, there's, I guess, a skincare line called The Ordinary or something like that. And the CEO mm. just got into hot water because he, he has some weird video online. Um, and I think a black woman commented under the post, like, are you OK, Brandon? And, you know, that was the extent of her comment. He was like, I'm OK, but uh, maybe you should do something about that dark skin. Or no, he, t- he told her to use some type of cream. And when you Google the cream, it's it is a skin lightening um like the it's a skin lightening ingredient he was like when that comes out maybe you should use that because you know your face doesn't look okay or something to that extent and you know it's interesting because with all of the team light skin team dark skin colorism that I see within the U.S. black community I, I don't really see people like fallen into like the skin bleaching thing which is huge in in certain international communities mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. that's interesting mm-hmm. to me 
Yeah, I remember watching a documentary a while ago about that. It was, uh, I can't remember which country it was. I think it was in South America. And they really were, have this huge issue dealing with skin, skin bleaching and trying to lighten the color of their skin. Um, uh, which I think is problematic in a lot of ways. But, you know, it, going back to what uh, uh, La Negra was talking about in The Breakfast Club, you know, I think this is an issue, not just in America, but in other, especially particularly Latin American countries, too, um, uh, of colorism and the like. What I really appreciate from Professor Jones's discussion and interview, too, was really bringing in the historical implications of it. Even though we have these conversations to date, I think a lot of the times we're not understanding why we're having these conversations. And it's really... Um, to me, old ultimately, I just feel like these conversations are not um, are very they're, they're dividing us in a lot of ways. Um, and I just feel like in my eyes, how I've always been is just that, you know, light skin, dark skin, whatever it is. I just always see you as black because um, I just feel like that's how you're always going to be treated. Even if you feel you're not or in a certain way, um, I just feel like you're just black. And we all have similar experiences being a black person. But of course, within the community, we do have these debates and the historical aspects of it, even what I found fascinating was, of course, I think most of us know when we had a conversation about field Negroes and and, and house Negroes, right, uh, from back in the day. Um, I think what I found interesting was that in the South, you know, with the mulattoes from her paper, they were actually treated uh, closer to whites um, because, again, most of their fathers or parents were white, right? If they were, if they were mixed. Um, and so they wanted to treat them in a better fashion and actually systemically set up ways for them to be kind of higher class than black folk. And then in the North, the mulattoes and the mixed people were treated like, just like blacks. And it wasn't until the political pressures of the civil war began to approach where in the South, they began to actually treat mulattoes a little bit more, uh, like black people and separate them from the pack so they can justify these means for slavery. Um, but ultimately, it's never been a ploy to progress black people, right? It's always been a way to separate them for some fashion. I think when we have these discussions that we do divide, ultimately, it's not it's not putting bringing us together, not looking at the broader issues, right? Um, does it really matter now? I, from her research, you know, there are issues like still today that are present where we are seeing lighter skinned people getting more advantages in multiple areas like the workplace, maybe even in the law um, when it comes to media and, and movies and acting and actresses and who what faces we see most likely are of lighter skin tones, which is the truth. Um, and I think that should be addressed. And on the flip side, I remember she had addressed too, you know, hey, sometimes light skinned people go through some things as well. Um, a lot of the times, you know, I have, I've had light skinned friends and dark skinned friends. And a lot of times the narrative I hear from my light skinned friends is um, this kind of caught in the middle where they're light, but they're not being widely accepted within the white communities. And then within the black communities, they always have to prove their blackness. Uh, people are always, oh, you're light skinned, you know, you're not black enough or, or things of that nature. Um, and so it's a big, it's a big part of the conversation. I remember when I first started, uh, even dating my, um, dating my wife, uh, I had a friend, a friend make a comment. I was drinking a beer, a beer it was an ale beer. And she had made the comment like, oh, you like your beer, like you like your women. And I was like, what? <laughs> what what you mean by that? <laughs> I, I said, what? I didn't know 
that. Yeah, she was like, you like your beer like you like your women. And I was like, you know, it's, mm, I don't know how I feel about that. You know, I kind of let it slide. I wasn't going to make a big deal. But it's just like, why would you, you know, feel the need to say that? Uh, and it, again, uh, to me, I see nothing good. I, we need to have these conversations to, I think, heal, understand and move forward. But ultimately, when you look at it in the long run, um, we do need to figure out a way to not make it create division amongst our community. And I think that's what she was saying in there. Uh, uh, we shouldn't, it shouldn't be seen as a bad thing or somebody's fault in any way for being the skin color they are. It's just like, okay, there are differences. There are things we need to address. So how do we do that together as a community? Cause we should want to see each other succeed, you know? And thinking about that comment, I can just imagine that like, I think that there are just a lot, there's a lot of trauma and hurt feelings probably on both sides of the like color spectrum in the black community, like trauma that people experienced in childhood and how they carry that into, you know, adulthood and how, you know, it, it can become baggage you know, in, in terms of how they, you know, interact with other people. And I will say that that's an interesting comment that someone could have made about you because I've known you long enough to know that you have dated women, black women on like, you know, every color range. So, yes, you know, that's not true. a comment that someone could make about you, but it probably stems from what often happens or what has happened in the media um, a lot in terms of people and honestly, unfortunately, you know, with it being a lot of black men who come out and feel the need to disparage dark skinned women as potential dating partners, like calling them dark mm -hmm. butts or, you know, just and so it's just kind of like, but it's also judge people based on how they act and what they are doing and don't necessarily place stereotypes on them, you know, based on like a decision that, you know, they're making in that moment. Because um, we are more than our skin color. We are more than like the people that we date, you know, at a given moment. Like, you know, we come to like everything with different, you know, experiences. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, very true. And, you know, it's just like you said, it's it's uh, like you just said in the beginning of this closing uh, segment is that, you know, it's a, it's a global issue. Um, it's just not something that is pertinent or prevalent within just the African-American community. And I think we need to all figure out ways to address this. Even within my own school, I have a lot of students from the DR and it's just debate, you know, sometimes them feeling like when we talk about the black community and them living here, they'll say things like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not black. You know, I don't consider myself black, even though their skin is of course as, as black as everyone, right? Black, black folk, period. Um, but they don't identify with it and don't feel like they may have the same experiences as the blacks that live in this country or African-Americans in particular. Um, and so it's, it's a, it's a, we need to have more conversations about this. And I think this was a good start. And I would, you know, really hope that you all really give us some feedback of questions you may have because we would like to answer it. Uh, we would like to bring more people in if necessary, um, you know, to answer some of these questions or get more feedback because this is not the this is not going to be the only time we talk about this for sure because uh, it's such a big issue. We would definitely want to even get if you know anyone that can give us or that studies the experiences of, you know, the Afro-Latino experience, because that's a, a large part of what happened on The Breakfast Club with La Negra as well. It mm -hmm. wasn't just an American experience. It's kind of what goes on there. And I think we need to shed light on that because I can remember, um, you know, when I was in graduate school, uh, 
I had I met uh, a friend that was um, she was black. She looked black. And then she when she started talking, she had this accent. <laughs> and I, got, I got confused and I was like. What, what, like, what, where's this accent from? And, and you know, she's like, oh, I'm from Colombia. I was like, oh, okay. Uh, there are black people in Colombia. It was really <laughs> shocking to me. Um, and we had this real conversations and, you know, she shed light, like, you know, really look at the Latinos that come to this country. And when I looked at them, I was like, you know, they are, are really fair skin and light skin. And, you know, she would say that, yeah, many of the people who have black skin in these Latin countries or wherever don't make it over to the United States because there's still forms of oppression based on skin mm-hmm. color going on there. Mm-hmm. And that was really eye opening to me. And, and I was like, wow, that, that makes a lot of sense. And so, you know, that's just evidence that we need to have more of these conversations uh, for sure. And also, I, so uh, it's funny because with that, with that same, you know, experience or that same friend, also seeing that there you know, our differences across even, you know, Latin American countries and communities with embracing blackness. So like, you know, I, I actually spent um, Thanksgiving with a group of black Colombians and they were all like, oh, I'm black and, you know, very much comfortable and very much embracing of their identity as black Latinos. Um, And so Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's not always the same with like Latinos distancing themselves from blackness. And I think that's why it is important to have those discussions and have those stories, because, you know, you can't we can't we have to stop judging people based on, you know, these stereotypes or, you know, characteristics and and not really getting deep into their stories to figure out, you know, what's what's behind it all um, and what shapes mm-hmm. identity. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, so this clearly by this conversation we have here, there's a lot more we're going to need to talk about and we will for sure. Uh, but, you know, we definitely greatly appreciate you all, like we say every week for tuning in, for subscribing, for listening. Continue to please give us feedback. Email us whatever questions you have at bhdpodcast at gmail.com. At BHD Podcast is our social media handles on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Reach out to us. Go to our website, www.blackandhighlydangerous.com. Participate in forums. Whatever it is, whatever feedback, whatever the questions you have, whatever topics you want us to discuss, continue to reach out to us. Um, and of course, rate and review on iTunes and everywhere else. And just, yes. like I said, share us, pass us around. Don't don't keep us a secret. We don't want to be a secret at all. We want everybody to know about us and, and, and be informed. And we want to be a resource to as many people we can reach. Um, for sure. Agreed. Um, yeah. Thank you for listening. And again, also emails in a, any topics. What do you want to hear about? What do you want us to have conversations about or grab resources or research about? Let us know. Mm-hmm. And if there are people you want us to reach out to specifically that you feel like, you know, you would love to hear on an interview and hear their perspective on things, let us know. Not to guarantee that we'll get them, but we will really try to get them. Um, And, and, you know, sometimes being in the settings we have, you know, being a professor and stuff like that, people will pay a little bit more attention to our emails when they come their way. Uh, So we might be have a better chance of getting them on the air and, and answering the questions you want asked specifically and directly to them. Um, But as always, thank you for listening. Continue to listen, spread the word. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear. Color your skin, 
color of your eyes That's the real blues, baby Like you met Jay's, baby uh, You blew me away You think more beauty in blue, green, and gray On my Solomon up north Twelve years a slave, twelve years of age Thinking my shade too dark I love myself, I no longer need you, but Enforcing my dark side like a young George Lucas Light don't mean you smart, being dark don't make you stupid A frame of mind for them busters, ain't talking woo-ha Need a paradox for the paradox, they tutor Like two ties, LL, you lose two times If you don't see your beautiful in your complexion It ain't complex, to put it in context Find the air beneath the kite, uh, that's a context Yeah, baby, I'm conscious, ain't no contest If you like it, I love it, all your earth tones been blessed Ain't no stress, Jigaboo's wanna be I ain't talking J, mm-mm, I ain't talking B I'm talking days we got school, watching movie screens That spiky self-esteem, the new James Bond gonna be black as me Black as brown hazelnut cinnamon black tea And it's all beautiful to me Call your brothers magnificent, call all the sisters queens We all on the same team, blues and pyrus, no colors ain't a thing If you're interested in continuing this and other conversations, visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com to subscribe to our email list, suggest topics, and participate in our discussion forums. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BHD Podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear. Worst fear.